0: is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Eddie Perfect, we continue the conversation of creation. We also talk about mentors, having a secret on stage, collaboration, and the return of Beetlejuice. So I hope you enjoy this part two with Eddie Perfect. Changing topic slightly. Um, Do you have mentors? Have you had mentors? Are there any standout lessons?
1: Yeah. I haven't had any... I haven't had any for a while um so now it sort of just develops into you know uh, sort of friendships with with people but when i was um a student yeah i had a few really influential mentors um you know it wasn't anything formal it was just um it it was it was generally people that came and taught at the training institution where i was so Mm. Um, one of those people was a man called Nick Enright who was, who was a playwright. He's passed away now sadly he was a playwright um, and he also wrote the book for musicals and he wrote the lyrics for quite a lot of musicals and he was an incredible educator and director and um, you know he was a big he was a big influence on a lot of students at that particular time. Um, but I also worked one of my first gigs out of um, uni was with a performer um, called Max Gillies who, is a um, political satirist in Australia and um, very famous, sort of famously plays other political figures in a live theatrical show. Mm. And I, at the age of like 25, he hired me to write songs and to be the piano player for his um, for one of his live shows. And so I toured all around the country with, with Max and that was incredible because I got to take, you know, my very dark satirical musical comedy and put it in front of his audience who had no idea who I was, who fucking hated me. They were like, who is this? Who is this dis- disgusting man? Um, but, you know, was a, that was invaluable for me because A, Max was really supportive of me, but B, um, I, you know, it was my experience of performing to a crowd who really hate you. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you do that? I would come home and go, oh, they, really, they really don't like me. You could, there's a there's a feeling I've never felt really before or since. You know, I've felt indifference before. I've felt like people go, you know, I'm not really into this or I'm not really engaged with this. i I've felt disengagement, and that's a really good thing to understand when you're feeling that in an audience.
0: Sure.
1: Um, but uh, this was a different experience where I where I felt like the audience just go, nah, nah. No, there was just a real. It was almost like they turned their backs. It was like an energy, sort of a reverse energy in the room, and it's like really shocking when you're a performer. You got to work out how to sort of ride through that. So, what did you figure out? He was, yeah, was that?
0: What did you figure out in how to ride through that?
1: I figured out that you've got to have a secret when you come on stage. So instead of just kind of going hey, do you like this? Oh, no, you don't like this. Oh, no. Now I'm kind of second guessing myself. Now I'm like trampling on my jokes and not giving everything enough space and time. Now I'm like actively sabotaging myself on stage because I just want to speed things up and I just want to get off. And I don't, you know what I mean? Sure. sure. That, instead of doing that. You come out with, you come out with a secret and the secret is, well, for me it was, not gonna you're not gonna like this in fact a lot of this is gonna like really be um maybe objectionable or um make you very uncomfortable but what I know is you're gonna be fine everyone's gonna be fine we're all gonna die I'm gonna die even the youngest people in this room we're all eventually gonna die It's a shit so I'm just gonna like enjoy this and I'm gonna keep inside me this understanding that you're safe and that you're okay and that it's all going to be fine. Um, And maybe uh, you'll, you know, um, maybe uh, an audience reaction to that would be, oh, this guy's got, and it did actually have an effect. This guy's got something, guy knows something that I don't know. (laughs) And he seems to be very, and doesn't seem to be phase And just that secret is incredibly seductive and had a massive impact on my performance. So it meant that even, even negative stuff fit into the context of what was going on. Oh, you're having a difficult time with that? Trust me, that we're going to be fine. We're going to make it to the other side and you're going to be okay. And an audience would be like, oh, okay, well, where are we going with this? You know, and that made a big difference. You create a buoyancy that allows you to um, float through it. and also, you know, a very a very particular lesson is if you're performing dark material, you can't be dark. You have to be light. Yeah. Um If you go dark material, then you start to get angry. So it's just like a, it's a bad trip. Dark material <laughs> needs to be delivered with a levity, you know?
0: Yeah. Where did you learn that? What is that? Was that from watching people or was that something taught to you? What did that?
1: I learned by, I learned by not doing it and fucking it up. And and just thinking, why? Just like having soul-searching nights where I'm like, "Why did the why was the audience so like sort of sad and depressed?" And you're like, "Going, maybe there's <laughs> well, a different way to deliver this, you know?" Yeah. And and it's just by like stage hours, you know, it's just similar to how um, stand-up comedians understand their act, it's, you know. Mm-hmm. You and having you know having worked as a, as a musical comedian you have a journey with material to do with a song where you just learn you learn how to perform your song and most of the time with really dark material you know um comedians will do also some comedians have absolutely no escape valve where it's just like dark 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 and it becomes a very acquired taste some comedians have a little like you know a nudge and a wink like this is okay or you know the i'm just i'm just kidding sort of thing um you know, you just sort of find your way through the, you find your way through the material. If I, you know, this is where it gets really dark and serious, and this is where I take my foot off the accelerator, and this is where it's light and fun, and you know, all the while, if you have inside yourself this understanding that this is this is playtime, don't stress. This is playtime. It has this. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but. An audience will trust you. I think nine times out of nine times out of ten, an audience sits down and they're like, "Am I going to be okay with this performer? Like, does this person know what they're doing? Do you know what I mean?" That's the first I, thing you think. Yeah. They're going to be, are they? Are they nervous? Oh, shit, they're nervous. All right, they're, they're a little inexperienced. Okay, yeah. or you know, that kind of stuff. But if you sit down and it's like, oh, this person seems to know what they're doing. They seem to be pretty. Content and that's dark, but they're you know they're in con- they're in control of it. So um, I guess I trust this person, so I can relax. You know, my brain doesn't have to worry about that, and now I can just engage in what's going on.
0: That I mean, it's very smart that you're saying that, and thank you for expanding on it. Because comedy is difficult. I mean, writing a joke, creating a set, the whole thing is, I think, probably one of the hardest pieces of entertainment, whatever, yeah. in any genre to write because you're really, you're just kind of naked, trying to manipulate yeah. emotions. With a... You are naked.
1: It's also like the other element of it that I, that I find complex, and we're seeing it play out, you know, you know even, even more today with um, the world of stand-up comedy is it's, it's about the material, but it's also about the the instrument for the materials about the person who is saying it as much as what is being said and um it's a very personal art form which is what makes it so immediate and great and you know people mm. are really get into individuals you know like this person is like this is they're hilarious you know they this is what they think in um yeah uh and that's and that's fine but when you're the individual it's also really fucking tiring. I'm like, I, I don't um, I don't give a shit about myself enough to kind of want to exist in the world as a, as a as a kind of a an, in, an entity. So when I discovered so I, when I discovered like writing um for musical theatre and especially writing comedy in the context of like Beetlejuice, sure. for me Beetlejuice getting um, laughs from an audience. When I'm my only involvement is writing the stuff and I'm up the back of the theater or I'm at home, you know, eating noodles or whatever I'm doing, that is like more satisfying to me than me standing on stage and going, Hey, this is Eddie Perfect saying these things about this thing. And so it is about what it is about the jokes, but it's also about me. And this is it's also about me and how I think about the world and you know what I believe about the world. And then, of course, because I'm me, you know, there are parts of me that are obviously. I'm not a God, I'm a human being. I've got faults and I've got problems. I mean, I'm not like, I don't want, you know, I'm not like the, I'm not the fucking second coming of Jesus. (laughs) There are stuff about me that's problematic. So, you know, Mm. for as good as I'm getting in telling these jokes or having these opinions and people are like, yeah, right on. But alongside that, there's also this whole world of people are like, who are you to say that? Mm. You don't know, you know, what? You know, you come from a very specific background, you know, a specific, like, set of circumstances that allow you to think in a certain way. So you don't have, we don't want to hear your opinion on that. And then there becomes this feedback kind of loop about, oh, you know, like, do I have the right to say this? I don't have the right to say this and far out, man. I don't know if I have the, I don't know if I have the energy for that. So, and, and I don't think that I'm as funny in that context. Like I don't think me on stage is as funny as me writing for the stage. So as a comedian, like, I think I'm, you know, I use all different tools, you know, um, my arsenal to, to be a comedian and I don't just do comedy, but I do love comedy. And I think it's a brilliant um, art form. And as you said, it's one of the hardest art forms. The the comedian in me wants to be the funniest I can be. And (laughs) the evidence sort of stacks up that, I'm funniest when I'm not in the picture and someone else is doing it. So um, yeah, so I like, Right. yeah, that's what, I think that's what it is. That's why I've gravitated towards putting um, comedy on the stage in the context of like a musical where you've got characters and you've got situations. And Hmm. for me, that's that's funnier, you know, the gap, you know, the, the way that people go about getting what they want in a way that sort of ambushes the thing that they want how, you know, we all live in the gap between, you know, who we really are and who we like to think we are, you know, that gap. Oh, yeah. And then we make decisions based on that, you know. um, uh, We're very strange creatures, human beings. And (laughs) I I find that world really funny to ride in more increasingly and that the sort of solo comedy performance stuff, which was a massive part of me, being where I am today is is less of an attractive idea for me.
0: Hmm. Is there anything you've learned from writing, particularly let's say Beetlejuice, that has helped you speed up your process or streamline any part of your decision-making or songwriting or it's all?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the, the big lesson from Beetlejuice was, um, Cut when to cut, cutting stuff, cutting just cutting, cutting was the big thing because, um, look, it's a, it's a natural part of theater, but when you write in a vacuum, like I, I did when I was in Australia, mm. there's no one there telling you to cut anything, it's just you know, you, and so you can, and when it's you, you just bullshit yourself all day long. You're like, yeah, this, this is this is necessary, it's telling them sort of thing. When you're working with a group of people, it becomes really obvious when an audience is starting to get ahead of the song. Like you get to the second verse and all of a sudden everyone looks at each other and they're like, I feel like the audience is with us. They already know what we're talking about. What's this, what's this for, hmm. this verse? And then, you know, the defensive writer goes, oh, well, it's necessary because it says, you know, A, B, C, and we're willing to say these sorts of things. But really, I think what is happening is, you know, as a writer, you're going, I've got some good jokes in that bit, or there's really good rhyming. There's a really good rhyme in there that makes me look awesome. And you're, you want to you cut that out and then it won't display how awesome I am anymore. Hmm. Um, so I got really good at being able to recognise and accept when things were too long, when for the sake of pacing and keeping ahead of the audience, it was necessary to cut stuff, but also how to steal the good stuff from the cut material put it into the material that was still existing so that you were always like kind of strip mining your own material parts like just go okay we're going to pull the we're going to pull this car and chuck it on that hey but there's like some awesome spark plugs in there I'm going to take them and put them in the first verse how's that mixing up medical spark plugs in the first verse you know what I mean (laughs) and um so, for example, like Barbara 2.0, I wrote, you know, like kind of in a back room while we were really just getting ready to go into the theatre and it was a little bit of a clandestine sort of secret mission to write this song that nobody had asked for and nobody really wanted <laughs> that I, I knew was necessary. And um, when I first wrote it, for example, you know, it had... Um, Barbara's verse and then it had Barbara's chorus. Mm. And then it was Adam's verse, you know. Um, uh, and Adam, Adam's verse was similar. It was like AA. And I was like, I was like okay, cool. And then he sang a whole chorus, you know, um, uh, which had, you know, lyrics. And then it went into the bridge and then it went out. And I, when I played the demo for Alex Timbers, he was like, yeah, it's great. But I think you need to, I think we need to get it, we need to get it down. And so I went in and I cut out the second A of, you know, Barbara gets her whole verse, Barbara gets her whole chorus. You know, it was always Barbara's, Barbara leading the transformation. And everyone's like, why isn't it called Maitland's 2.0? I was like, because it's Barbara, it's Barbara's song. You know, Barbara starts it, Adam follows. And I just felt like, you know, also Carrie Butler was getting annoyed that I was cutting the song and I wanted to, you know, make her happy. Fair enough. Weirder things have happened on Broadway because people wanted to keep actors happy. I can tell you that right now. I believe um, you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I cut out the second A section of Adam's verse and then instead of doing a whole chorus, I just did the second half of the chorus. And and we were so under the pump that I didn't really have time to kind of like, I was like, cut that. I'll take that out. And I work in logic on my computer. So it literally is like just cutting that out in the bin, move that forward. Um, this happens. Um, oh, you yeah, know, maybe there's a musical break here. Um, instead of, like, having a musical break and then having a whole chorus, what if I make the first half of the chorus the music break and then the, and the, uh, the singers come in on, you know, time to let go, which is, you know, mm-hmm. and all that just was like, boom, and it made the song a billion times better than the first version of it. It just... I can't tell you how much during Beetlejuice, the process of cutting down a song was illuminating in how much better it made the song and how little I missed the material that was cut. There was nothing I looked at on stage and I was like, "Ah." the original version of that was with all those extra verses and stuff was heaps better. So Mm. that's what I learned. But that is a good lesson, but it's also... um, you know, I've worked on other shows where the director wants to cut stuff, but they're not as smart as Alex Simbers. They're just not, <laughs> and so they don't. You kind of like, I don't trust. I don't trust you. Yeah, yeah. Well, they don't have a head for what's going on. I don't have a head for music. Um, so it's yeah, it really depends on who you're working with. You got to trust them.
0: Well, yeah, and you have to trust yourself. I mean, it's like it's almost like a gut instinct or an intuition where you decide whether or not to push a point or be like, yeah, yeah, I got to let that go.
1: Well, this is the thing, though. This is the thing. I feel like, and I'm just making this up. Great. You know, there is a big expectation that you'll be a good collaborator, and that means being open to changing your work, to writing in a different direction, to cutting stuff, you know, every department needs to have that mindset of, like, we're collaborating and things are coming and going. Every now and then you can find yourself in a situation where, like, on, on Beetlejuice, for example, there were a few times where I was like, I think I want to die on this hill. I think this is actually right and everyone wants to cut it, but actually I don't, I don't think we should. And I would like the opportunity, you know, to let this idea die in the room, not die in the darkness, but to die in the light. And so Alex Timbers would be like, sure, let's take it to this. When we do the workshop, we'll, we'll look at it.
0: Mm. And there's
1: heaps of stuff. There was whole songs. There were sections of songs that that lived in that world of like, I just want to see if they work. And then they, we would do them and it'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a piece of shit. Let's cut it. <laughs> um, other times everyone would be like, uh, you know what? I think you're right. I think that's really good. Because, mm. you know, you don't really know about stuff until, you know, you see it sort of live or die um coming out of an actor's mouth yeah um then I've worked on other stuff where I just had a different sensibility to what was going on to other people so um people would go I think we should cut that or we should cut this down and you'd be like no no that's not going to work because of xyz and then you find yourself saying no a lot and then everyone's a little bit like oh, this guy's the fucking no guy, you know? Why, you know, why is he digging his heels in? Why is he being so difficult? And then I don't want to be that person because I want to, you know, I want people to come away from an experience working with me going, you know, Eddie's a really open collaborator. Like he, you know, mm-hmm. he's not defensive. He's open to new ideas. He's willing to do the work to change stuff if it's not right. What, what a great experience I had working with Eddie we should work with Eddie again mm. but on other projects it's been like this awful thing where you start to in the spirit of wanting to be a good collaborator you start to make concessions on your work that you kind of know are wrong and then you end up writing shit and then it goes out into the world and your name's on it and it's like yeah because i was trying to please a whole bunch of people who i we didn't we didn't share a sensibility so i don't mm. know i don't know how to deal with that I haven't worked out how to deal with that. I think maybe you need to be like on lookout for it really early on. And if you get a sense that you and your collaborators are not on the same page with how you want to tell a story, that maybe you just got to like pull the ripcord and, and, you know, jump out of the building. Mm. Well, jump out of the building, then pull the ripcord. Otherwise, you'll will get, will get caught in the office furniture. I don't know why we're in an office in this situation, but I imagine like office jump out the window and then oh. you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. So um, but I don't I've never quit a thing in my life. I've never walked away from a thing. I just cause things have been bad before and then they mm. come good. You know, you're writing a show and it's like it's tense and everyone's not getting along and you know, you're all fine and then the show is really good. Mm. Sometimes it's really shit, and also there's this phenomenon where if something's really good, then everyone forgets how shit it was making it. But if something ends up being really bad, then all, all you can do is look back over you know the bad and try and people start to blame you know whose fault was it, you know what went wrong, you know, as they say, success has many fathers and failure is an awful. <laughs>
0: That's completely true. That's, and thank you for expanding on that. Cause yeah, the the collaboration aspect of, you know, creating musicals or the, you know, theater is just like there's a lot of dynamics.
1: So many mm-hmm. dynamics, working with people. And yeah, and it's like, um, is it? Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember the name of the author. There's that, there's that great book, The Season. Is it William Golding? William Gold Goldman? I can't remember. Oh God, people listening are going to be so upset with me. Um, my excuses. It's early. Um, it is. He wrote man. a book called The. He wrote the script for The Princess Bride, and yeah, amazing writer. And he wrote a book called The Season, which is about one season in Broadway. I think it was in the late '60s when Judy Garland was doing a concert tour, and who? What else is in that season? Is um. Uh um uh, it's a bunch of quite a lot of plays and some extraordinarily weird musicals. Um but he talks about the muscle. Who has the you know, who has the muscle, which is like who has the power to get what they want on, on the stage. Mm. And I read that and I was like, yeah, that's really interesting because you know, when you work with um when you work with Alex Timbers, you know, I would say that um to you know, to greater or lesser extent, you know he has the muscle to get his ideas on stage. He does it in a very um, collaborative way. So you know he's very sure about his process, and he listens to everybody and takes everything on board. And you know he he's one of the I my collaboration with Alex Timbers is one of my sort of favorite professional relationships. I think I've ever had. Like I just love working with him, and he so he shepherds in you know you look each other in the eye and you go what are we going to do and then we do it and it ends up on the stage and so you know he kind of has the muscle to do that but he shares it very generously amongst all the people that he works with whereas other people it's like you know there's a there's a real hierarchy and, and you kind of find yourself not or there's a mechanism that's really complex and you finally you can't get your ideas on stage or you know who who knows um so, yeah, but it's really, it's really complex. It's not like, I used to have a lot of people say, I, I would say, oh, I really like this idea, but, um, you know, Anthony and Scott, the book writers aren't into it and, uh, or, you know, or well, the producers don't like this joke. They think it's too dark and, you know, to kind of, and I had friends who are like in the industry, but but the art writers and they'd be like, who, who gets the final say on that? Like, as if, you know someone at the end of the day goes well i'm glad we have this chat but <laughs> you know i'm the sheriff, i'm the sheriff and i get my idea my what i say goes you know yeah, right and i'm it doesn't work like that no one ever there's never any point at which someone goes just fucking do it do you know what i mean yeah. there's times when i got really close to it being implied you know where someone didn't say it but the subtext was just fucking do it yeah um, but no one ever says that. It's always it's always collaborative, um, and it's usually what the kind of group wants. Let's try let's try this, you know. So um, and then when you break down a musical into small things, it's normally about a, a small a, a small issue. Um, it really depends how passionate people feel about it as to whether it becomes a kind of a deal breaker. You know, mm. do you want to quit? over like one joke is that the hill you want to die on you know like we had parts where we were like really like the joke um and maybe the producers didn't like it on Beatles or thought it was too crass or whatever and you know they're trying to protect the piece and then they want as many people to see it as possible obviously and we'd be like ah that'd be right you know do you want to quit over a joke or do you want to like create a you know do you want to work with a team of people for five years and then like fall out over one joke, and then that's the end. you know what I mean. So it's, sure. it's always relationships, and um, yeah, massaging those things. So it's so complex. It's really complex, and people are fucking weird. You have to get along with all sorts of different people, you know. And I'm probably really weird, my myself. Like you know, I you know, I um, I have. I turns out I have no respect for freshness, right? So. Tech time, let me explain that. Tech time, um, you know, anyone's ever done a tech rehearsal, you're just sort of locked in the theater forever and there's big tables across the desks and then, you know, computers everywhere and everyone's, you know, um, working on the show, technically. Um, And in New York, you guys are like insane with snacks. Like the amount of snacks you've got, it's like, who comes up with snacks? You know what I mean? It's amazing. And I would, like, eat snacks, but, like, uh, the music department were really annoyed with me because I don't um, properly roll up the bag and lock in the freshness. And I was like, no one. And I was like, no one does that, right? No one rolls, you know, every time you eat a pretzel, you have to roll because you don't eat pretzels. It's like they're pretzels. It's, like, it's basically cardboard with salt on it. as You know, is it are going to notice? But, turns out. They noticed. Freshness is a thing. And I do not respect the freshness. So, you know, that's one example of how, you know, we're not all all perfect.
0: Well, yeah. (laughs) But that's, I mean, it's a good point because you're you're a very forward person. You say what's on your mind. You know, it's this is my thought. This is what it is. But dealing with, you know, people who might be passive (laughs) aggressive, (laughs) you know, there's a muscle for that.
1: I can't handle passive aggressive, passive aggression. (laughs) And in New York, there's a little bit of that. Yeah. it's quite it's um i think it i think it comes because um people want to be polite and because um people sit on a lot of discomfort and you know maybe anger and so there's a lot of like trying to hold knowing that you have to hold that back um And what that means is that, you know, I found that New Yorkers would just, like, go from, like, zero to 100 miles per hour pissed off, like, in a in a flash, you know. Yeah. All of a sudden, if someone, you know, sir, sir, you're like, what is happening? You know, because (laughs) you missed a step step where something was not good for you and you didn't have the words. It's like kids, you know, the words that go, hey, you know. So there's a lot of, like, it's tense i found it tense sure. sometimes in you know um, but it's like that everywhere it's tense in like in in the uk there in the uk everyone's so fucking polite you would have no idea you could be accidentally you know like killing somebody and they would be like literally dying their life ebbing away uh and they might not even tell you about it, you know, which is such a time waster. You need to be able to say, hey, I'm
0: you done. know,
1: I found that you just have the best kind of vocabulary of language to say when they don't like something in a nice, respectful way. So you learn the language and you go, hey, you know, I've noticed why don't we try this? And, you know, you just, you, just, you talk about it. So it is com- it is complicated.
0: It is. Yeah. And it, you know, you, you learn it and you have been flow and that's funny. Those, those examples are hilarious. How are you balancing achievement versus fulfillment in your life?
1: Oh God, I don't know. Not I either. have no idea. Not even thinking uh, about it. <laughs> because achievement doesn't, um, achievement buys you a, like a little bit of, a little bit of time, but I think, you know, I don't want to be, I don't think anyone wants to be the person that's just sort of like written one Broadway musical. You want to write, like, you, I want, this is what I want to do. I want to keep writing Broadway musicals yeah. um, or writing any musicals. And you want to be like growing as an artist and, and changing and, and getting, you know, more adept with your craft, like getting better at the way you write. and mm. And you want to think that the best stuff is still ahead. Um, so, uh, I think sort of the, there's a bit of a, like a feedback loop between achievement and fulfillment, which is like, um, which has been really messed up by this whole pandemic because Melbourne has been in lockdown, um, and just haven't been able to do anything, you know, even, even writing has become art. So, you know, I, you know, if I get a song written, in a day, that's a sense of achievement. Now, it's not on stage yet and it's got to go through a lot of different places. But um, I, if I, like say for today, I sit at the piano, which I won't because I haven't, I am just want the kids to go back to school and then I'll do some shit. But if I sit down at the piano and I write a song and I'm really vibing on it and I send it to my collaborator and then I make dinner for my kids and then, you know, sit down in the evening, I have a sense of achievement because I use the day to write a song and I'm... And I'm happy with that. And I find that very fulfilling. Hmm. And I have that little loop go around. And the the achievement fulfillment loop is is, is tiny in my you know in the creation of something. Hmm. And then it starts to get like starts to get bigger. Sure. And then when the show comes out, there's like, you know, the show goes on and then the whole audience sees it. And then an audience kind of claps or they don't clap. Or, sure. you know, you have to go and fix something, something that's not working, you go and fix it, and then that's a great sense of achievement. That's fulfilling, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so well, that's the professional side of things. And then with the life side of things, I don't know. My, my life is so much a part of writing and I have my, you know, my wife and my kids and I have things I like to do. Um, I can't really remember what those things are because we haven't been able to really leave the house for yeah. almost yeah. two years. So, yeah. um, But, you know, I don't know. I, I kind of like just um, one foot in front of the other. I know that if I've got a project to work on, something to kind of occupy, something to kind of, that's a, that's a focal point for which life revolves around uh, a, a project that I'm passionate about, then mm. I'm, I'm kind of grounded. So anything from like a conversation with you to, you know, um, walking my dog in the park, you know, they, they all happen with this project living inside my head, mm. which means that if I get an idea, there's somewhere for that idea to go. You know, you can be, like, in the shower and and a thought can occur to me that's useful for this idea I'm working on, and then now there's a place for that idea to work, to, to live. And if I don't have a project, I don't know where the fuck to put those things. I'm like, oh, yeah, um, you know. Well, I was laughing at how I looked up a, a recipe and, you know, you get, like, you get this kind of insane like personal backstory before you get the recipe, you know? And I was like, that is so funny. That'd be a funny idea for a song. Like it's just like, it's called like a Recipe for Cookies or something, but it just has this woman's like
0: Never gets horrible
1: relationship with their kids and how I had other kids over and how judged she feels by them. And then it's, oh <laughs> yeah, some flour and some sugar and some butter. <laughs> Yeah, you, you like scroll, scroll. Oh my god, they're still going scroll, scroll. My
0: twelfth birthday. You know, yeah.
1: That's <laughs> um, a funny idea, but I'm not writing yeah. a you know, I'm not writing a solo show for myself. So I the the furthest that idea goes is into my phone as a as a note, you know. I'm like, okay, um, uh, you know, song about this. And then sure. every now and then if I need to write call me, i I go into my notes and then I'm like, that's a, a terrible idea. or That's a good idea. You know what I mean? So sure. having th- knowing that there's an outcome for something means that there's somewhere for my thoughts to go and not having an outcome is not good because those thoughts have nowhere to go. And that's depressing. Cause you just feel like, yeah, it's, they, d- they die. Yeah. But when are they ever going to come back?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, so that kind of answers the next question. It was, you, you don't have like a trunk of music, so to speak. It's really like your phone. You know, your, the bits that you uh, come no, up with?
1: I don't... Um, I don't believe in the trunk song. I don't... I mean, yes, of course, everyone has songs they cut with just sit in the trunk somewhere. But the the idea of um, taking a whole song that's being written for one context and then bringing it into um, a new context, that has never worked for me. The only... Only time, I think, when, I mean, I've done it before and I've always, probably no one gives a shit, but I feel like it's like, it's like, um, you know, you take somebody's kids away and you, you get rid of their kids and while they're not looking, you get these other kids, somebody else's kids, you've, you've made them before and you bring them in and you put them in the house and you hope the parents don't notice. And I'm like, I know, they're not their kids. The kids don't belong there. I can't. I can't deal with it. So every time I've done that, I just it maybe no one else notices, but it drives me crazy. Only time I did it, and I didn't mind it so much, is I stole some of the riff from an opening number I wrote for Beetlejuice called "Gotta um, Get Out of This House," which I really liked, and I used it as the verse riff for Barbara 2.0. Hmm. That's pretty. Very- time of that where i like but it wasn't the whole song it was just literally just the um dun, 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 dun. that's it i'm gonna use that um but the chorus was different in you know, so it was um that was sort of more like what a musical strip mining you know it's more like taking the spark plugs <laughs> off the old car and put putting-
0: i love it addy this conversation is fantastic I uh, thank you so much for for just giving so much. I love this. I love this conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah. I would put, do not read this. <laughs>
0: just for laughs.
1: Yeah, I like that. I, I love it. That's good. This can't. I've actually sponsored, you know, you can, you know, you can sponsor seats in theatres and you get a little plaque and you can put names, you know, it's yeah. a way of like you buy a seat and they put a little plaque on it with somebody's name. <laughs> I, I support theatres and I just put, do not read this on the seats. And it's great. It's so people are like, Oh, it's, it's brilliant. And also cause you know, it's weird going, putting in, it's weird putting names on it. And it looks like some kind of mistake. Why is someone made a plot? with like generated? I know you wanted something inspirational, but there's No,
0: no, no that's hilarious. That's hilarious. Um
1: be be nice to each other. Yeah. You know be what kind, I mean?
0: be kind, grace, love. Yeah. <laughs> um what are you looking forward to here? What is what's most exciting? What's getting you most excited during this time? Anything in particular?
1: Um well, we're heading towards summer here in australia and friday um is the first day that lockdown ends um here and just to kind of paint you a quick picture we've had um the only thing open in melbourne are grocery stores you're not allowed to go more than 15 kilometers from your house um shops are closed no retails closed theaters are closed um pubs and bars and restaurants are closed everything is shut um it's you know everybody's isolated from each other you can't travel to the sort of regional areas of victoria which is where my parents happen to live they live outside of metropolitan melbourne so i haven't seen them in months and months and months and months so i guess i'm just kind of like um that's that sort of restrictions ease quite significantly on friday and then they as we get we reach other vaccination targets they they ease even more. So I'm looking forward to seeing my parents and giving them a hug. I'm looking forward to um, my kids are um, uh, enrolled in like a junior surf life-saving club sort of um, thing where they train uh, mm. on the beach, train and sort of surf life-saving skills, and it's called nippers, they're little nippers, and um, it's a big Australian tradition and it's a lovely way to spend um summer which runs you know obviously over christmas for us because we are the we are the opposite to you guys in the southern hemisphere here um christmas with people that i love and we've got this um holiday house that we my wife and i um bought in this like it's really crappy and it's in a really kind of um it's 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 in a very non-fancy area there's a place called the Mornington Peninsula which is um as you would imagine, like a, it's a peninsula and one side is Port Phillip Bay, the other side is, you know, Western Port Bay where there's some, there's a bit of surf and I like, I really like the ocean and I like uh, the surf and I'm teaching my kids to surf. So that okay. um, is summer where we're really looking forward to getting down to the house and my wife's going to ride her horse and I'm going to take the kids surfing and hopefully, you know, lots of dinners and catch-ups with friends that we just haven't, scene and then hopefully theater comes back next year yeah it does
0: that's fantastic well thank you so much for taking this time and, and congratulations on those you know lifting the lockdowns that's that's a lot so that's yeah, helpful do
1: you know that your name is also in the name of a suburb with a quite a prominent university here in melbourne is it monash University, is a very big university one of the big sort of four universities in melbourne and it's in a suburb called clayton so there you go. Oh, there it is. I bought a second-hand bed frame in, in Clayton. So there you go. <laughs> You're making a big impact here.
0: <laughs> bed frames in <and> universities. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate it.
1: It's <laughs> a pleasure. Thank you, Clayton.
0: People of the world, Eddie, perfect. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another Curiosity Conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening.